0: There's a few things in life that I'm not good at. It's okay, I'm good at other things. There's a few things that I'm not good at. Do you know the feeling? There's just certain things, they never came easy to you. Even if you practice them, maybe you got a little bit better, but they're just not your lane, just not what you love. I have a few of those things, and one of them for me has always been art and I have never been under any grand illusion that I was any good at art. I think that I can appreciate good art to a certain point. I like art, I like to look at something that someone else has done. But from a pretty early age, it was evident that I was not gonna be an artist. My stick people were not good as everybody has other stick people. I never really graduated from stick people, that's still all I can do. Uh, not really my thing. Um, I'm just, I'm not good at art. And here's how I know that I'm not good at art. One is just all the history of, I just know that. <laughs> But the last time I took an art class was in junior high because I had to take an art class. Everybody had to take an art class in junior high. And one day we were painting pictures. Everybody had to paint a picture or something. I think I was painting a picture of a bird. And uh, I'm doing my thing. And actually, I thought, knowing that art is not my forte, I thought, this is not going that bad this looks kinda good, it actually looks like a bird, whatever I'm supposed to do. So I'm going along, painting the thing, everybody else is doing their thing, and the teacher is circulating, and looking at everybody's work, and giving advice, or little encouraging comments, or whatever, and she comes over to me, behind, you know, over my shoulder, and she looks at my thing, and she kinda taps me on the shoulder and says, don't worry Dave, when I grade these things, I grade them based on whether or not it's good for you. (laughs) And I was like, oh, thanks, and she walked away. Wait, what? What does that mean? I know that I am not good at art. And I know that I am not good because of that. Because of that story. Because of a lot of stories. And I don't really care. Like, you know, again, love to appreciate art. But it's not like the driving force of my life that I need to be a great artist. The problem is a lot of us have significant areas in our life that do really matter to us. Where we would still say, I'm not good at and I know that because. If you had to fill in those two sentences, what would you say? I am not good at, and I know that because. So maybe there's something you know that you're not good at, something in life that maybe you wish you had done better, you've achieved something, you've, you know, you're at a higher level. And the reason why you know that is because you've got a story you could say, there's a story that tells me why I'm not good at that. Now, again, if it's art class and art was never a big deal to you, no big deal. But for a lot of us, we would fill that out and we would say something like, I know that I'm not good at being a mom. And then you have a story that in your mind tells you why you don't think you're a good parent or a dad or a spouse or a leader or a Christian, an evangelist. Why you're not good at overcoming temptation? And the problem is for many of us, we know, at least in our head, we're not good at this, and we've got it because... We've got a story that goes along with it, a story that's lodged itself somewhere in our brains that reminds us and tells us, you're not good at this, you're not good at this, you're not good at this. You have failed in this area. And maybe some of us have struggled through those failures to even believe that there is something better for us, that we could grow in that area, that we could be restored in that area, that we could overcome some of the fears or the challenges that we have. And so today I wanna talk about what it looks like to conquer our failure. John chapter 21, follow John 20 if you were here last week, and Uh, we're talking about these stories of the disciples. They're trying to figure out life, put the pieces back together after following Jesus for a few years. And then Jesus is crucified. He's resurrected. And you might think, oh, now everything's just supposed to be perfect. And you know, the resurrection solves everything. And yet they're trying to figure out life. They're trying to figure out what it looks like to follow a resurrected Jesus. Uh, What they thought was going to happen for the most part had not happened. And so they're thrust into trying to figure it out. And at the end of the Gospels, we get these great stories that I think teach us so much, help us so much um, as they conquer some of the things that are in their past and teach us about how we might move forward the way that they had to move forward in the light of things that they had dealt with. So John chapter 21, starting in verse 1 says, later Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there, Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed Twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you not caught any fish? No, they replied. Simon Peter, Jesus is crucified, resurrected, says, let's go fishing. Why? So the disciples knew how to do. Many of them had been fishermen. That was their previous way of life. It's what they, what they knew, it's what they knew how to do, it's how they made money. Uh, it's natural in a sense that after this great crescendo of the cross and the resurrection and now what do we do in life? Well, What do you do? We often go back to the things that we know, back to the rhythms and the routines to the skills that, that we uh, are, are accustomed to. Sometimes in commentaries, if you're reading uh, on this passage, sometimes people they, they go, oh, these disciples they totally missed a point. They're going fishing. They're supposed to be doing great things for God and building the kingdom of God, and maybe they were supposed to do that, and they certainly do eventually, Uh, but also I think it's just very human for them to say, well, what are we supposed to do now? Let's go fishing. That's what we did before. Let's go fishing. It's what we know, and when we don't know what to do, we go back to what we know. They had a frustrating night. They couldn't catch anything, And they see Jesus, although at first they don't recognize him. We're not sure why they don't recognize him. It might be because it's dawn, and so maybe it's too dark to see him. But we also see when the resurrected Jesus shows up to people that he knew before the resurrection, often there's some kind of change we don't always know. And it takes people a while to recognize Jesus, which I think, uh, if you go deeper than just the literal reading of that, really makes a lot of sense because for all of us, sometimes it just takes a little while for our eyes to be opened and to see Jesus and what he's doing in our lives. Verse six says, then he said, Jesus said, throw out your net on the right side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. This is, I don't know about you, my son and I love to go fishing together. And my son, he could fish the entire day if you let him. He would just, he would go out there and fish and fish and fish. And I have a lot of fun with him. The most fun is when he's six he catches a really big fish because it's hilarious watching a little person catch a big fish. And he gets so excited, of course, haul that thing in and just, you know, the joy of we caught a fish. Whatever. Well, the disciples had the exact opposite experience, which happens sometimes. If you're a fisher, you know that happens sometimes. You can spend the entire day out there and you go everywhere you know to go and fish in all the good fishing spots and then you come back and you've got nothing. And you know what the most annoying thing is when that happens? You're frustrated, you're tired, maybe you're And someone goes, Oh, did you try over there? Yes, I tried over there. That's kind of what Jesus does here. Oh, try the other side of the boat. And they've got to be thinking, We're professionals. We spent most of our life up until this point fishing. We know what to do, but they do it anyway. And they catch so many fish. Look, there's some pre shadowing, foreshadowing here going on that they, even back at fishing, were complete failures. The things that they were professional at once upon a time, right now they were failing. And then Jesus shows up and he says, try the other side of the boat. And all of a sudden, that failure is transformed. We'll see that theme come up again. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. So now they start to recognize Jesus. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic for he had stripped for work. Kind of weird. Jumped into the water and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to shore, for they were only about 100 yards from shore. So Peter, probably what it means is he had this outer cloak that he kind of opened up and he was free to fish and stuff. And then he's going to jump in the water, so he probably ties it around him so he's not going to drown. That's the weird he stripped part. Um, But he jumps in and now he's excited because he sees Jesus and wow, all of a sudden we couldn't catch fish all night and we've got, uh, we've got the net is so full that we can't even bring it up onto the boat. And verse nine says, when they got there, so they all now come back to the shore, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Now I got to ask you this, do you have any memories that there are senses attached to those memories? What I mean by that is when you uh, see something or hear a certain song or smell something, it triggers a, a memory, a certain time in your life. Can you think of those things? So sometimes we have those significant times in our lives and then uh, our brains kind of sort that out. And so sometimes you're, maybe you smell somebody's uh, perfume or cologne and it reminds you of somebody else in some relationship that you had or, or, or something happened with someone else. Or you go into a certain building and it's a certain smell and it reminds you of something. And all of a sudden it just brings your brain right back to that spot where you've got that experience and, and it puts you back in that spot. Do you have one of those? So it could be a song, could be a visual, could be a smell, but your senses just bring something up inside of you. This is only the second time in all of John's Gospels when we read about a charcoal fire. Jesus is here now cooking breakfast around a charcoal fire, which is not a super common thing to bring up. And the only other time a charcoal fire is mentioned in John is John chapter 18. And it's a story about Peter, Simon Peter, who was standing around the charcoal fire. Here's what it says Jesus was arrested. Everything was going down. Everything was leading to the cross. Everything was dangerous. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching at the gate, and she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, You're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I'm not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards made a charcoal fire. They stood around it, warming themselves. And Peter stood with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire, warming himself, they asked him again, You're not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, No, I am not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Again, Peter denied it, and immediately a rooster crowed. Three times, Peter fails. His ultimate failure in life. The inability to be faithful. He couldn't do the right thing. He didn't have enough courage. He couldn't be loyal to his friend, his Lord, his Savior. he had given up so much to follow Jesus, but when it got hard, he couldn't follow through. When it mattered most, he wasn't strong enough and his resolve crumbled. Couldn't be there, couldn't stand in, couldn't take the hits must have been devastating to witness Jesus crucified and to have known that as a disciple you weren't willing to stand by him, to even acknowledge that you were his followers. This is Simon Peter's great failure. And now once again, he stands by a charcoal fire. I wonder if the sight, I wonder if the smell of the smoke brought him back to that moment of his great failure. Transported back to when he was not Enough. There's a lot of uh, responses or reactions that we have to our failures. There's a lot of ones that aren't great, to be honest with you, but they're natural, and we've probably all done them. Uh, I'll just I'll go down the list of a few of them. Uh, these are these are pretty common, and even you could talk to psychologists and stuff, and they'll bring this up because we've all got things that we're not proud of, all got regrets, all got um, things in our lives we wish we had done better at or wish we were stronger for. Um, but here's some of the ways that we deal with failure in our lives. One of them is perfectionism. So we vow to ourselves that I will be perfect. I will not make mistakes. I will make sure that everything is right. I will go to painstaking effort to ensure that I never make a mistake again. And this is a very difficult way to live because we all make mistakes. Because we can never live up to our own idea of what is perfect. Because all of our stories have broken parts to it. Because it's just impossible to be perfect all of the time. And so, when we kind of move into that perfectionist mode, we become, uh, we become vulnerable to mood swings. Because something, even a little mistake, can really throw us off. We become anxious and insecure. We anticipate sometimes that we'll be rejected for not being good enough or, or being perfect enough. We get defensive to criticism, if everybody, anybody's ever pointing out, even if it's constructive, something, uh, a mistake that we're making or something that's not just right, we get very, very defensive. We demand to be in control as much as we possibly can, even to an unhealthy amount. And we often tie ourselves and our self-worth to the ability to accomplish something to make sure that it is all done right. It's a very hard way to live in perfectionism. A little cousin to perfectionism is procrastination. Does this ever happen to you? You've got, uh, you've got an assignment do at work, an essay or something, or a report at work or a presentation that you're working on, or you're writing a sermon, and you've got to make sure that it's good and that it's done right and that it's planned properly. And so you sit down to do all that work. And as soon as you sit down ready to do that thing that you have to do that has to be done really well, you realize, oh, man, the kitchen's got to be cleaned. I should do some vacuuming. It's been a little while. I've got errands. I've got to run to the bank machine. By the way, nobody has to run to the bank machine for anything anymore. It's all online. But in that moment, all of a sudden, you've got a million things you've got to do. And what's going on there? It's because you're sitting down and you're going, oh, if I start typing, if I hit send, if I do that email, then it's out there. And part of us deep down is like, but it might not be right. It might not be perfect. And so we find ways to find other things to do, to not have to commit to that thing, to not have to push the button, to not have to send it in. We proc- procrastinate, and we find something else to do. Or we avoid taking risks. We think we're going to fail, be embarrassed, humiliated, defeated, so we don't try things. Keeps us from doing important things, bigger things, taking leap of faith, pursuing adventures that God might be calling us to. We don't try to succeed because we don't want to endure the pain of failure, and so we might avoid those risky things altogether. For some of us, it might be a sense of hopelessness or, or even pride. And I think those things go together. If we believe that we're going to fail, sometimes we just say, again, no use in trying. Why do it? There's no point. Why put in any effort? But then the flip side is, so if that's hopelessness, ah, there's no use in doing it. Uh, Pride says, uh, maybe I'm very insecure about doing these things, but I'm going to pretend like I've got confidence. I'm going to pretend like I'm I'm worthy of something. I'm going to pretend like I'm something that I'm not. I'm going to exude confidence and make sure everybody thinks I'm worthy and I'm useful and, and, and I'm important. And I've got all these things, even when behind the scenes, we've really gone into despair and we're struggling. I wonder, Simon Peter standing next to the fire, smelling the smoke and seeing the flames, if he's experiencing all those emotions, and asking himself, what's the reaction? Where do we go from here? Is there a way forward? Back in chapter 21, verse 10. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard, and he dragged the net to shore, there were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since, they had, since he had been raised from the dead. 153 fish. Why 153 fish? There's a few theories. Uh, One of them is that uh, the, the Jewish people at that time believed that there were 153 nations And so they believe that the 153 large fish uh, are representative of the nations of the world and saying that the good news of Jesus, the kingdom of God, is a big enough net for everybody to be pulled in. And he was giving them an effectiveness to reach the entire world with the good news of Jesus and his grace and his forgiveness of the cross and resurrection. Some people think 153 is because uh, they believe that that's how many types of fish or kinds of fish that they believed existed. So different, whatever, species or classes or families of fish that that's our and same kind of idea is that the the you know this catch is like we can catch all of the fish we can be so effective that you were a failure yesterday and now today you are successful you catch everything and the good news of Jesus will hold you there and still some other people go 153 fish is just a lot of fish I don't know. Could be, could be any of those. Uh, but that is kind of the, probably the mindset behind it. What's 153 fish? Is They go from no fish. They go from complete ineffectiveness. They go from complete failure, from I can't even fish anymore. And I was a fisher before I was following Jesus. And then Jesus comes and says, try the other side of the boat. And now all of a sudden, he's brought them an effectiveness that they didn't have without him. That everything has changed. And they go, oh, we we can't even pull it in. And so they drag it the last hundred yards into the shore. A little more foreshadowing. Verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Do you get it? Standing at the fire, smelling the smoke, looking at the flames, three denials, three opportunities for redemption. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter gets gets hurt. And he says, you know, you know everything, Jesus. There's this irony-filled statement. Jesus, you know everything. You know that I love. But that's the point. The questions aren't for Jesus to find out that Peter loves him. They're for Peter to be reminded that he loves him. And for Jesus to help him get it in his head, I know you love me. But what about the denials? But what about my failure? But what about the time I stood by a fire just like this? It wasn't that long ago. And they asked me if I was your disciple, and I said no. And they asked me again, and I still said no. And they asked me a third time, and I just couldn't admit it. I wasn't strong enough. And now, at this fire, Jesus gives him those opportunities to redeem him, to pull him back, to say, you can follow me. You can fo-. That's how the book of John ends, by the way. There, there's another excerpt which refers to how Peter, we think, dies, is martyred, uh, crucified. Um, that's, tradition tells us that's how Peter died. But Peter, listen, Peter's about to become... One of the the greatest leaders in the early church. I mean, he's going to run the show. He's going to do big things. But here in this moment, Jesus brings him back to that moment of his failure. And he doesn't just go, ah, forget about it. It's like he's got to bring him back into it so he can think about it and feel it. And then go, but do you love me? And he might be tempted to say, I wish I could, but I can't. He might have been tempted to say, I had my opportunity to show it and I blew it. Do you love me? Yes, I love you you know I love you. Then he says, feed my lambs. I love this because you know Jesus is there. It says that he's feeding them breakfast. He's making them fish. He's giving them bread. He's feeding them. And every time Peter says, yes, I love you, he says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. As I have fed you, feed them. As I have forgiven you, forgive them. As I have loved you, love them. And it's this encouragement that says, and even though you failed in the past, you can do it. You can do what I'm calling you to do. Don't let your failure steal your future. I know it's there. But don't let your failure steal your future. You still have a future. I know you can do this. He's saying, I actually believe in you. I believe that you can do this. And I'm not asking you to be perfect, I'm asking you to be faithful. I'm not saying you've got to have it all together and never make a mistake. You don't have to go to perfectionism. Just feed my sheep. Feed the lambs. Take what I have given to you and pass it on to them. The charcoal fire had been a place of Peter's greatest failure, but now transformed into a moment of opportunity to embrace his future. So what opportunities will we forfeit if we can't conquer our failures? What is it that God might be calling us to? What great adventure, what people to to reach, to love, to care for might we miss if we allow our failure to frame our future? Don't let your failure steal your future. Instead, you might need to come to those failures once again and to hear Jesus say, but do you love me? And you say, yes, I love you. You know I love you. And he says, good, then come and follow me. But I'm not perfect. That's okay. Okay. I'm not asking you to be perfect. I'm just asking you to be faithful. Don't fear your failure. Instead, be faithful and ask yourself this. What is it that God is calling you to? What would it look like if you didn't let your past or your insecurities or your inabilities to stop you from saying yes to what God has for you? So here's my encouragement to you this week. Even if you've got some insecurities, even if you've got some fear of failure, even if you've got some of that in your background and you think, I don't know if I could do these things anymore. This week, today, Just go home and take one step. I can't solve all this, man. I've been a bad, maybe you think, I've been a bad parent. I am not a good parent. Maybe today your step is to go home and just find one step. One one encouraging conversation. One act of service to love your kids and to take one step of faithfulness and to say, maybe I've made mistakes in the past, but that doesn't have to be my future. You might say, our marriage is so broken. We're struggling. I have not been a good husband. I have not been a good wife. What is the solution to that? Maybe Jesus is saying, just follow me. And maybe today it's just picking one step. How do I love my spouse really well? How do I serve my spouse really well? How do I extend one word of encouragement or forgiveness or grace. Maybe you think to yourself, I give to temptation. I've not been a good Christian. I've not been a moral person. I've done these things in the past, and I wish that they weren't there. But I keep falling into that same hole. Well, what if today you said, this is my fresh start, and that past doesn't have to be me, and you just decide to take that fresh start of grace and of love, and to say, I'm going to take one step into walking a different path. Jesus just saying, do you love me? You say, yes, come follow me. Come take the nutrients that I've given to you, absorb them, and then pass them along. So there's this uh, Japanese art form. Uh, it's called, apologies for the, uh, the, the way that I say this, kintsugi. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Uh, there'll be a picture in the background. You can see what it is. Um, it is this, this art form whereby uh, they take broken pottery, so pottery that's been smashed and there's pieces everywhere. It's all broken and, uh, you know, what it was supposed to be, it isn't. And they start to put it back together, but they put it back together with gold. They melt the gold and where all the fault lines are, they start piecing it back together until it is what it is, except obviously it looks different. But as it's repaired with gold, it actually becomes stronger and more valuable, more beautiful. Beautiful because it was broken, not because it had never been broken. And you can see it. To say, what if? What if we took all these broken pieces? What, what if we thought, oh, this is this never be put back together? But carefully, skillfully, one step at a time. We started putting each piece back together. And we did so with such a precious metal, with this gold, such that when it finished, you said, this is not less valuable, not less beautiful, but more for being broken and then being put back together. This is a beautiful and a wonderful thing, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you this. I am not so good at art, but God is. And may this be so in each of our lives that we would allow him to put the pieces back together with gold so precious that it might be even more beautiful for being broken. So Heavenly Father, uh, we just want to say thank you. Thank you that um, the cross of Jesus shows us redemption, shows us a way forward. We just wanna lift up in our own minds uh, our own failures and perhaps for some of us today, it's really painful. There are things in our lives we really wish uh, did not exist. There's stories, there's memories um, that hurt and we have deep regrets of it. But God, today we wanna bring those things to you uh, because we believe that you are uh, the great healer and that you are uh, a master artist. And even where our lives have fallen apart, I pray that today, just maybe in one step, you would start to take those broken pieces and put them together. And that as you put our lives together and as we trust you and we rely on you to do that, we, we wouldn't be stuck in, in looking around and looking at our failures in our past and, and simply saying, oh, it's all broken. But instead we would say, in our brokenness, we praise you, God, for putting us back together. We praise you that our story is not less beautiful, but more beautiful because of the redemption that you have spoken into our lives. We thank you for the cross that shows us that it's possible. We thank you for the resurrection that puts on display the power of God to take broken things and dead things and put them back to rights and bring them to life again. And so we praise you and we thank you for taking our broken, broken lives and putting them back together. In Jesus' name.